0: Welcome to What Christians Should Know, how you can apply biblical principles to everyday life. Good day to all. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadaf, and welcome to What Christians Should Know, Episode 1.5, The Incarnation, Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we get started, as always, I invite all my listeners to please visit the official home of What Christians Should Know, at wcsk.org. There you will find a host of valuable resources that empowers you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now let's get started. So this episode is the fifth lesson in the What Christians Should Know series, and will complete the examination of the core or essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Certainly, Christianity is much, much more than five principles, But these central tenets lay the foundation upon which everything else is built. The remaining five lessons of Volume 1 will continue to educate on other basic doctrines, ideas, and principles. All Christians must fully understand the gravity of who Jesus is to all of us. He and He alone is the only path to the Father, to salvation, and to eternal life. This is why in John 14.6 Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. The path to heaven, the path of atonement, and the path to forgiveness of sins is irrefutably and exclusively through Jesus. There are not multiple ways, there is only one way. Anyone who suggests otherwise is not basing their assertions on the Word of God and is purposely contradicting the Lord. Accordingly, to deny that Jesus is the only way is heresy. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10.33, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Rejection of Jesus is a rejection of God and irrevocably leads to death. In what follows, I will explain why Jesus is so important and why Christless Christianity is formless and void. So in the second podcast episode called Who God Is, we talked about the first of five core doctrinal principles of the Christian faith now we've arrived at core doctrine number two which is that jesus christ is fully god and fully man in one person that means that jesus is unchangeably indivisibly and inseparably a union of human and divine natures in one being not parted or divided into two persons, with the property of each nature, God and man, being preserved. A simple way of saying this is that Jesus, remaining what he was God, became what he was not a man, and will be so forever. Now, to understand that core doctrine, you have to understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the incarnation of Jesus really is the rescue mission that God executed in order to save humanity. Now the word incarnate means to embody in flesh or to take form. So God became a human being or took the form of a human being by becoming flesh. And this becoming did not happen after Jesus was born, so that a human became God. Instead, Jesus was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not have a human father. In Matthew 1, verses 18 to 20, the text says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Luke's account of Christ's birth, found in chapter 1, verses 26 to 35, is a little bit more detailed. The center of that account says, The angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. As a result, the conception of Jesus was very miraculous, but His birth was very ordinary. The virgin birth affirms that Jesus is not some ordinary guy who has a mom and dad just like you and me. Because He is fully God and fully man, He is very special, and his conception was necessarily miraculous. Because Mary never engaged in sexual intercourse to conceive Jesus, there was no effort on her part. This affirms that our salvation has nothing to do with human works and is totally and completely dependent on God. If Jesus did simply have a regular mom and dad that conceived him, it certainly would be hard for anyone to believe that quote unquote God was conceived in the same way you and I were. Furthermore, Jesus was born holy, sinless, and thus without any of the legal guilt of sin or inherited moral corruption as a result of Adam. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that sin is inherited from the Father only, nor does it say that Mary was sinless. What the Bible does say in Luke 135 is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, overshadowing the Virgin Mary, the child she would give birth to would be holy. Christ also was without sin throughout His entire life and always conducted Himself in a manner pleasing to the Father. Jesus is a lamb, unblemished and spotless. The birth of Jesus was not unexpected. His birth fulfilled several prophecies from the Old Testament, the same scriptures that Judaism uses as its authoritative word. The first allusion to Christ comes in Genesis 3.15 when God says that the seed of the woman, not the man, would crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, of course, means God is with us. This prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew one eighteen, and verses 22-23. to 23. Micah 5.2 tells us where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. The text says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Matthew 2.1 fulfills this prophecy. Finally, Malachi 3.1 tells us that Jesus will enter the temple in Jerusalem. The text says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew 21, verses 12 to 13, and Mark 11:15. And because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., We know that these events had to happen before that date, and they did. The Incarnation highlights the intimacy God has with His creation. Jesus chose to enter into our physical realm as one of us in order to save us. This means that Jesus had breakfast, used the bathroom, and sat down and had dinner with His family, just as you and I do. He did this because God does not leave creation alone. He became one of us so we can say we have a Savior who was very personable and who experienced everything that we do, including temptation, weariness, hunger, and thirst. He also grew and had to study in order to learn and become wise. He learned how to become obedient, had a soul, and experienced personal turmoil. Jesus has a real human physical body. He is not an impersonal God detached from all reality who rules from afar, and it is because Jesus was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Furthermore, it's one thing to say that Jesus was just a human being. It's another thing to fully embrace the idea that Jesus had to be fully human in order to save humanity. The full humanity and full deity of Christ is beautifully articulated in the timeless classic On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Athanasius wrote on the Incarnation in defense of Christ's full divinity and against Arianism an emerging theology of the time that suggested Christ was subordinate to the Father. Had Christ not been wholly divine, Athanasius argues, then Christ would have needed a mediator himself to bring us into fellowship with God, and that imperfect mediator would thus need another mediator creating an endless succession of imperfect mediators without anybody getting saved. Athanasius beautifully and repeatedly argues that the entire process is motivated by the love of God for His creation, and to suggest that God would impart upon us a less-than-perfect mediator would in fact demote and diminish that love motivation to less-than-steadfast, permanent, perpetual, and all-encompassing. And to summarize what Athanasius says about why Jesus had to be human, he writes the following. The Word perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the Word, being immortal and the Father's Son, was such and could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death, in order that, through belonging to the Word, who is above all and itself, remaining incorruptible through His indwelling, might thereafter put an end to the corruption for all others as well, by the grace of the resurrection. In plain English, what that means is this. A temporary human being can't pay off an eternal debt owed to God due to sin. On the same token, an eternal being cannot pay the penalty for sin, which is death. But someone who is a perfect unison of God and man can do both of those things. And thankfully for us, his name is Jesus. Further explanation as to why Jesus incarnated is best summarized in Hebrews, a book of the New Testament addressed primarily to Jewish converts familiar with Old Testament prophecy. The theme of Hebrews is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus as the revealer and mediator of God's grace. In essence, Hebrews illustrates that the bridge between humanity and God is Jesus. In Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 17, the highlight of that text says Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus is our great high priest, not because he is God, but because he was also fully a man. As a result, he knows exactly what it's like to live on earth, deal with everyday problems, and struggle with real issues. Hebrews 4.14-16 says, The verse from Hebrews 2 uses the word propitiation. This comes from a Greek word that means to atone for sin, to render oneself, to make reconciliation or to expiate. In other words, propitiation means turning away God's wrath. So, in order for Jesus to turn aside the wrath of God against guilty sinners, He had to become one with us and die as a substitute for us. So let's explore some more why Jesus had to be fully human. First, Jesus was a representative who faithfully obeyed on the behalf of all humanity. Adam was the first man, and his disobedience in the Garden of Eden condemned all of humankind. Jesus is the last Adam, or the second man, Adam is the first, so that through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Since God cannot be mocked, His original intent to have humankind rule over creation is fulfilled through the perfect obedience of Jesus, who can thus rule over all of creation. Second, because God is perfectly just, He is incapable of saying never mind to sin. So while He is merciful and may want to forgive us, a penalty must be paid for the sin that we have committed. And that debt must be paid because, as we know from the last lesson, the wages for sin is death. Propitiation is thus necessary because sin is incompatible with God and is offensive to His character. He may forgive sins, but if a price is not paid, then God would be merciful but not just, which is contrary to what the Bible teaches us. And from a logical standpoint, a God that is merciful at the expense of being just is a pushover, and people are free to do what is right in their own eyes. Third, one day we will all stand before God to face judgment. If humanity is separated from God because of sin, only one person can serve as a mediator for us and bridge the gap between God and humans a person who is both fully God and fully human. And this makes perfect logical sense, because how could God, being perfect, accept anything less than a perfect mediator to vouch for us? In order for God to save human beings, Jesus had to be a human being. If someone is owed $100, they will not accept apples for payment. Even more, because salvation comes only and exclusively from God, Nothing from creation, which is finite and corrupt, could save us, but the eternal and timeless Jesus could, who can bear the full penalty of sin. This is why in 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Fourth, the Bible is filled with imperfect people who all try to be obedient and faithful but failed. So who can we look to as a human example on how to be divine? Jesus. He is the blueprint that we must follow. As 1 John 2, 4-6 says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Fifth, when Jesus' physical body rose from the dead, it served as a model by which all of humanity can follow to inherit a new imperishable body raised in glory. This is why after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to many in a physical, tangible, and flesh and bones body. So now we're at the crucifixion. If it's been a while since you've read the story of the crucifixion, I invite everyone to briefly turn to Matthew 27 and read verses 27 to 50. So the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was one of the most heinous, barbaric events in the history of the world. Yet this horrific event demonstrates the unceasing love of God for His creation. The crucifixion and death of Christ did not have to happen, but God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The cross, then, simultaneously represents the love and justice of God, because Jesus dying on the cross atoned for our sins. Atonement, in a general sense, refers to the work done by Jesus in His life and death. Atonement, in a specific sense, refers to the debt of sin paid by Jesus through His death on the cross. The question, then, remains, if God's wrath is turned away or propitiation, something still absolutely needs to pay the price of sin because God is perfectly just. Think of it like this. If you owe a money collector debt, someone may intercede to stop them from harassing you for a time. They may turn the money collector's wrath away. But the only thing that's going to satisfy that money collector is when that economic debt is paid. The answer to that dilemma is to pay the debt and have someone cut a check. When it comes to sin, the answer is the atoning sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on the cross. This brings us to the third core doctrine of the Christian faith, which is penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? It refers to the fact that Jesus bore the penalty of sin in His death, He was a substitute sacrifice for us all, And that penal substitution atoned for humanity, thereby reconciling us back to God. So it must be recognized that before Christ's sacrifice atoned for our sins, and thus changed our relationship with God, the death of Christ had an effect on the relationship of God with us. Before Christ, there could be no redemption. With Christ, there is redemption exclusively through the debt paid for us, by Christ on the cross. The blood of Jesus therefore irrevocably pays the full debt owed because of sin. The precursor to this event in the Old Testament is the Day of Atonement, or modern-day Yom Kippur. In Leviticus 16, long before Jesus' death, once a year the high priest would make an atonement offering for the sins of the people of Israel. Two goats would be used one to be sacrificed and the other as a scapegoat that would be sent out into the wilderness. The sacrificed goat would bear the penalty of the people's sins, and the scapegoat was sent out in order to remove the sin from the midst of the people. An example in the Old Testament of the wrath of God passing over the people is first seen in Exodus 12 when the innocent blood of a Passover lamb protects the people of Israel as God passes over those houses marked with blood on the doorposts and lintel. The atonement of Jesus was simultaneously necessary for our sake, but not necessary for God's sake. God did not have to save humanity at all, but He did because of love. God, for example, did not save the angels who rebelled against Him, and that action is perfectly just. So, as a result of God deciding to save humanity, the sacrificial atonement of Jesus became necessary. As a result, when Jesus died on the cross, He had already lived a life of active obedience, fully and completely fulfilling the requirements of God's law. Christ suffered for our sake and then died on the cross for our sake and died for our sin. Yet it is important to remember that the life of Christ was characterized by the absence of sin and exemplary righteousness. Therefore, the death of Christ is as important as the life of Christ, because in order to be reconciled back to the Father, or to restore a broken relationship, a person needs more than a lack of sin. A person also needs to have an upstanding character to be in fellowship with God. God is not neutral but overwhelmingly good, so in order to commune with him, we have to strive higher. Such righteousness comes only from God. As it says in Philippians 3 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. If the life of Christ was not important, He could have passed away immediately after birth, but because he lived a righteous life without sin, he can serve perfectly as our representative to the Father. As it should be clear by now, everything that has to do with our salvation happens as a function of God alone. This brings us to our next core doctrine of the Christian faith, which is that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Galatians 2 verses 16 to 21 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself up for me, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So to unpack those verses, for the sake of simplicity, what Paul means by works and law refers to things that you do and rules that you follow. Both are incapable of saving anyone, because if that was the case. Christ did not have to be crucified and die for our sins. This is why religion saves no one, but Jesus saves everyone. The idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, also nullifies any human effort, because if we are not saved by the free gift of God only, then that means that we, as sinful creations, can do something and win God over. This is false heretical doctrine and essentially tells God, we can control you. This central fact is one of the key differentiation points of Christianity from every other religion on planet Earth. And just to be clear, when you do listen to episode 2.9 and hear the lesson on sanctification, it becomes clear that once we are regenerated, or once we are born again by an act of God, we then go through the process of sanctification where we DO cooperate with God working in our lives. But the point is that that initial event, the ability to respond to God in faith, is an act of God alone. Isaiah 64.6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Romans 3.21-26 says, through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So because we are sinners, through propitiation, we regain God's favor not by anything that we do, but by the gift of His grace only, through faith in Christ only. Propitiation is also discussed in 1 John 4.10 where it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah 53.5 says, But He was pierced through for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for the sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And 1 John 2.2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now that the context and meaning of the crucifixion is clear, we shall proceed to the event itself. The crucifixion was a barbaric, brutal, and arduous ordeal. The event was so catastrophic that the word excruciating was invented to describe it. When Mark 1524 simply says that they crucified him, it does not fully convey the pain of the whole ordeal. In fact, crucifixion was the ultimate form of punishment in the Roman Empire, typically reserved only for those individuals guilty of crimes against the state. Crucifixion was banned against Romans and Jesus was crucified in the center of the other two men executed that day. The center spot was reserved for the most despicable scum, according to the Romans. Before the crucifixion, Jesus was flogged by Roman soldiers. As Dr. Alexander Metherell states in The Case for Christ, Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. It was just terrible. In fact, taking the flogging and crucifixion in total, the event was so terrible that Jesus was tortured beyond recognition, as prophesied in Isaiah. Dr. Methrell mentioned that some people die from the flogging alone, but Jesus' suffering was far from over. In fact, all the bleeding from the flogging causes so much blood loss that Jesus presumably had low blood volume and therefore was weak, dizzy, and thirsty as He carried His own cross to be crucified. This may explain why Jesus collapsed en route to Golgotha. Although Christ was sinless, He suffered tremendously on the cross, and crucifixion essentially meant a slow death by suffocation. Although the barbaric procedure normally took hours, in some cases the afflicted would wait for days before they passed away. Basically, the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails on a wooden cross. The five to seven inch nails went through the bones of the wrist, not the palm, and therefore crushed a major nerve in order to secure the body onto the cross. Routinely, the wrists were nailed very far away from the body, so both of Jesus' shoulders would have been dislocated to anchor him into place. Jesus therefore would have had to have supported his entire body weight with his arms because his feet were nailed onto the cross as well. Since his chest was stretched upwards and sideways, it became very difficult to exhale against severe pressure. The only option for exhalation was for him to pick up his body by the strength of his arms, tugging at the skin and soft tissue nailed into the hard splintered wood. His torture was agonizing and just to take a breath, he had to add to his agony. This crucifixion was an experiment in anguish, where the simple act of breathing became a prolonged, unbearable experience. And keep in mind that Jesus did all of this as a free, loving gift, even while being spat upon, mocked, and ridiculed. So if anyone ever asks you, what has God done for you, you can confidently affirm the living hell our Lord and Savior endured for humanity. After Jesus had died, a soldier pierced his heart with a spear. The Bible says that blood and water gushed out. This was just the physical pain. Jesus also suffered the psychological pain of being scoffed at while helpless. In fact, before the crucifixion, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated blood, a rare yet medically possible phenomenon that only occurs under times of severe stress. And Jesus also had to suffer the emotional trauma of bearing the burden of sin for all of humanity. He, being holy, found sin detestable, but had to bear the burden of all of our guilt, despite his utter revulsion toward evil. Jesus was also alone on the cross, having been abandoned by his disciples and had no means of consolation. This is why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because bearing the burden of sin separated him from fellowship with God, who unleashed his full fury and wrath Toward sin against His only Son. Hundreds of years before Christ was crucified, Isaiah predicted that the debt owed to God would be paid, and when Jesus recognized that He had paid the full penalty for sin, He said, It is finished. This one-time sufficient payment in full frees us all from condemnation. Jesus shed His blood on the cross, and His precious blood was the ransom paid to free us from sinful ways, cleansing our conscience removing the barriers between ourselves and God, progressively cleansing us from sin, and conquering death in the accuser. The removal of barriers is illustrated in Matthew 27.51, which says, "...and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split." In the temple in Jerusalem, the veil separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple." In essence, a building that symbolically represented barriers and precise stipulations, that distance God and man, now have the divider between where God is and where we are torn. Without Christ, we all deserve death and God's wrath because of sin. That sin subsequently separates us from God and enslaves us to sin. Christ sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of sin, to propitiate for us, to bring us back into relationship with God, and to redeem us out of sin. Yet propitiation and atonement alone would bring us back to zero having turned God's wrath away and having paid the price for sin. God even takes it a step further and justifies us. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him." Justification is a legal construct. God considers all of our sins immediately and instantaneously forgiven. And He also declares us righteous as a function of Christ's righteousness. God predestined everyone He would call, and those whom He called He also justified, and those whom He justified He also glorified. The entire process is God-dependent and human-exclusive. Justification comes as a function of faith in Jesus only, and no one can condemn those whom God has elected. God imputes the righteousness of Christ into us. So, Adam's sin was imputed to all humankind, and that sin is then imputed to Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to all who have faith and believe in Him. And in Galatians 2.6, Paul elaborates and says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh we justified. Without justification we would not be righteous in the eyes of God, and thus unable to live eternally with Him. This brings us to the final core doctrine of the Christian faith, the resurrection, that Jesus was crucified and died on the cross, and on the third day he rose from the dead. For a scripture reference, I'll direct everyone's attention to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. So, the resurrection of Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecies that occurred 700 years before the event itself. Christ also prophesied about his own death, that he would rise three days later. Effectively, the entire New Testament is a collection of books written by people who were either eyewitnesses to the risen Christ or who obtained their information from people who were direct eyewitnesses. The Apostle Paul, who had a direct and personal encounter with the resurrected Christ, wrote the majority of the New Testament. The entire book of Acts contains numerous appearances of the risen Christ to individuals and to large groups of people, and specific appearances to the disciples are located throughout the synoptic Gospels as well. The first thing to take notice of is that the resurrection of Jesus was very special because it was a permanent resurrection into an imperishable, eternal body. The resurrected Jesus was the first fruits of a novel paradigm of human life after death. This is not like Elijah's raising a widow's son from the dead. This is not like Elisha raising a Shunammite's woman's son from the dead. This is also not like Lazarus being raised from the dead. All of those people have died after coming back into temporal, perishable bodies. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had a transformed, glorified, immortal, flesh-and-bones, non-perishable body, impervious to hunger, pain, suffering, death, and sickness. And that physical body was very real, which is confirmed by the fact that the disciples touched Jesus' feet, he took bread and broke it, Thomas touched his hands and his side, he made food, and he ate and drank. Why Christ had to raise from the dead is very simple. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. In fact, the resurrection establishes Jesus as the only religious figure in history to have ever died and come back from the dead to tell everyone about it. From the standpoint of Christian doctrine, the resurrection has much significance. First, as believers, the Resurrection regenerates all of us into new people being born again to a timeless hope through Christ. We are made alive by Christ and raised up with Him so that we are continually putting to death our old sinful ways of being and living and in turn are considering ourselves alive to Christ. As a result, we are no longer in bondage to sin and the Holy Spirit will empower the Gospel to be spread to all who will hear. This regeneration turned the original apostles who were fearful and had abandoned Jesus before his resurrection into bold men of faith who willingly died for the risen Lord. There is certainly something powerful and moving when the original disciples were willing to die for something they had seen with their own eyes. Additionally, their paths to martyrdom were much less than glamorous. The resurrection turned skeptics and non believers into devout followers of Christ such as the conversion of Paul in Acts 9. It is worth noting that before Paul met the risen Christ, he made a name for himself persecuting and killing followers of Jesus. The resurrection revolutionized Jewish life and converted those Jewish followers of Jesus to, in many cases, instantaneously abandon thousands of years of tradition. They abandoned the law as a requirement for membership in the community, changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, ceased making animal sacrifices, and worshipped Jesus as Lord. In the same line of thought, the celebration of communion and baptism in the early Church, practices that still continue today, highlight the significance of the resurrection because both symbolically celebrate the death and then rising of Jesus. It defies logic for anyone to celebrate and cherish someone's death, unless that death meant something very, very significant and the fact that Christianity as a new religion expanded and flourished under oppressive conditions to become what it is today testifies to the power of the resurrection. Second, the resurrection of Christ justifies believers so that there is no longer any penalty to pay for sin and no more wrath to endure from God. This is not a free pass to sin, but rather an assurance that we are all not ultimately fated to death because of sin. Only by the power of the resurrected Christ can we become dead to sin and alive to Christ. In fact, the resurrection also shows believers that the resurrection is what we all have to look forward to. Therefore, our labors on earth are not in vain because we know eventually we will be raised up, just like Jesus, into heaven. In conclusion, what Christians should know is that the cross is the ultimate act of selfless love and sacrifice for the sake of others. So if you've ever wondered, what has God done for me? The answer is that he gave up everything, was rejected, tortured, suffered, and died for your sake. Now that we have covered the five core principles of the Christian faith, I hope it has become very clear to all listeners that what the Bible teaches is not a superficial, simple-minded, haphazard mess designed to delude the ignorant and enslave the masses. It is an intellectually complex, rich, and enlightening book to which no other book can compare. Furthermore, the doctrine of Jesus serves as the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Without Jesus, we have nothing and we are nothing because He holds the keys to everything. Many people in our modern world are outside who have the wrong idea about Christ and Christianity. Also, some inside have the wrong idea with even more disastrous consequences. Yet both groups have the same problem. They have never read the word for themselves and heard sound doctrine. As I hope I've made very clear, God takes sin very seriously, and because God is just, he may forgive sin, but a price must be paid because of his justice. If God simply says never mind to sin, then he is not righteous, and thus can invite every cruel, perverse, wicked, and malicious individual to fellowship with him with a casual shrug of the shoulders. That will conclude this lesson. I invite everyone to join us next time for episode 1.6, Covenant. See you then, and God bless. Thank you for listening to What Christians Should Know. For more valuable content, please visit us at chesadophil.com. For general inquiries, email us at info at wcsk.org.